0: And why we've gathered here today, and that's to receive from the Lord by going to His Word. Today, we are continuing through the book of Ephesians in our series Transformation. Uh, Again, throughout the entirety of this year, even well past this sermon series, you're going to hear me remind you regularly about our goal as a church for the year 2021. And our goal as a church is. Is to see 100 people experience transformation, and as always, I want to keep that category broad so that we don't limit the way God wants to work. Transformation can be salvation; it can be next steps in the faith, from baptism to when we have membership classes, uh, to experiencing hearing testimonies of people being set free from addiction, demonic strongholds. Um, We want to see, like we do, want to see salvations. But you just go down the list marital, uh, relational, restoration, kids honoring their parents more than they used to, you name it, we want to set it before the Lord and say, God, we're believing in faith, you're going to do this that we have set before you. So we're in this series walking through the book of Ephesians concerning this topic of transformation, Um, and today we're going to be jumping into chapter four. Um, I have a question for you to kind of guide our time like I normally do, but before we do... No, no, I'm going to save it. I'm going to save it. I'm going to tell you something, but I'm going to save it. So so let me just tell you what the question is this morning. Here's the question. How important is community? How important is community? That's really what I believe is a big point that Paul is answering in the first six verses of Ephesians chapter four. Now, kind of to help illustrate the point, there's a show that's been out on the History Channel. <coughs> Anybody watch History Channel? Anybody? My brother watched it growing up all the time, and I never did. But now I'm appreciating it more. Like he would watch hour, like two, three hour long documentaries on different wars and civilizations. Like this is so boring. But now I seem to enjoy it now more. I don't know why. Um, <coughs> but there's a show, uh, like a reality TV show called Alone. I don't know if you all have heard of that before. But the premise of it is. A group of carefully selected individuals, 10 in total, are chosen and carried off to a very remote part of the world in order to see who can live off of the land the longest. And they're allowed to bring 10 particular items that are set in categories. So they, they say, OK, here here's a total list and you could pick 10 things off of these lists to bring to help you survive. But here's the deal. You're always alone throughout the entirety of it. And what's so interesting to watch throughout the show as the episodes progress and you get close to the end of the season and as people are tapping out where they call on a GPS phone and say, I can't take it anymore. I've been here too long. Sometimes sickness gets them. They ate something bad when they caught their fish or they didn't boil their water well enough or they just got sick. They got too wet. The the elements get to them. Those are real realities. People get afraid because of the wildlife and bears and wolves and all these different predators coming by. That's a reality that gets them to tap out. But the bottom line that always comes down to, usually always comes down to the last few individuals to see who's gonna be the winner is whether or not they can maintain the emotional stamina to be completely isolated from human beings for an extended period of time. And what's interesting is, You know believe it or not i'm very introverted i'm somebody that at the end of the day doesn't mean that i don't like people it just means that i recharge when i'm by myself and so i could spend a lot of time by myself and i'm good that way doesn't mean i hate anybody just means i i like my alone time and i watch the show and i've heard it said over the seven seasons that have aired so far that so many of these candidates that are selected always say well i'm a really introverted person and i do really well on my own so i think i'm going to be good but once they've been isolated from human beings in the beauty of nature thinking oh yeah this will fill me but once they've been isolated for extended periods of times literally they can't handle it fear overtakes them pain overtakes them desire to be with people overtakes them and i just think it helps prove a really important necessity of our created nature not fallen nature not sinful nature but godly given created nature and that's the fact that we are individuals that were created for community and there's no and ifs or buts around that so That being said, today, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to see how Paul really at the end of it, I believe, answers this question of how important is community. So let's go to God's word right now, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and it says this, therefore, I, referring to Paul, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So the first word that I want to point out there is the word therefore. That's a really important word. We see similar words to that like for this reason. And we've seen that multiple times throughout this book. And every time you see the word therefore for this reason, an easy way that we learned it in Bible school, Pastor Chase and I is uh, our professors would always say that whenever you see the word therefore, you need to ask yourself the question, what is it there for? You know, it's kind of a, a, a simple, silly way to force us to do something really important. Go back and study the context, which we've seemed to have done every week in a way to remind us. Now, we've covered the first three chapters of Ephesians and why it's so important for us to focus on this summarization really quickly is once again, because in the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul has endeavored, he has set out to really answer the question, why? We ought to, fill in the blank, be obedient to God. Right here, he said, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk. There's the command now, the straight fork, man. We've got a lot of practical steps over these last few weeks about actions that we can take. But really, Paul doesn't get into his affirmative imperative, here's what you need to do now. Here's the steps. Here's where you need to be obedient. He doesn't really do that until right here in chapter 4. So the first three chapters were this summarization of a a theological perspective of God that's necessary for us to have before we can walk, before we can live obedient to the Lord. So let me just really re-summarize what the last three chapters have all been about. Context, it's love. Love, 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 love. And when we can adopt the love that Jesus Christ shows, towards others then we can truly achieve unity so so that's really the big overarching idea but let's go back to it love as we have seen throughout this book refers to the love of god that track with me i'm going to say a lot the love of god that chose us predestined us for adoption redeemed us from our sins gave us an internal inheritance made us his inheritance gave us the holy spirit as a seal guaranteeing Christ's return and then filled us with power through the Holy Spirit, which is the same power that rose Christ from the dead and solved the irreconcilable mystery that seeks to bring racial reconciliation. That love is the basis for the exhortation that Paul is about to give us to act, to walk. So he's saying it's important before I give you this imperative that you remember all of this is to be done on the foundation of the love that is found in Christ. Apart from him, you're not going to be able to accomplish it. You're not going to want to accomplish it. You're going to be tempted to think, why do I even need to bother? It doesn't serve me. But the love that we've seen is completely denying our own desires in order to put the needs of others before our own. It's all that God did for us. And now Paul is saying, based on that love, you need to do this. And we're going to get into that, but based on everything that I just said, let me give you this point that's important for you as, as students of the word of God, which every Christian ought to be. Hear me. Like, this ought not to be on Sunday morning, coming and hearing the word of God. That can't be your only point of inception of the word of God. I'm here to illuminate it and to help you. But now you've got to take it and you've got to take the tools that you receive here and put them to use and put them in practice. So here's the first point that I want to make. What you believe determines how you will behave. And that's really important. Because I think we really take that for granted a lot of times in our everyday life. We think it doesn't matter what I know. It doesn't matter what if I believe. As long as I do it, who cares why I do it? Who cares the reason for my decisions to act in accordance with this standard? But that's a problem that we see all over the world right now, adopting that kind of mindset. Because then if we don't know why we're doing it, we're always going around doing things based on our feelings. There's a lot of things that I don't feel like doing that I need to do. And there's a lot of things that I feel like doing that I should not do. And if we allow our relationship with the Lord to be based solely on feeling rather than a decision based on the evidence, based on the knowledge that is given me in the word of God, then we're never going to act in accordance with his word. So listen, we can't feign ignorance. I think the lie that we try to tell ourselves as human beings based on the fact that we don't want to hear the truth, we don't want to study the truth and know it for what it is, because we know what's going to lead us to act in a, in a certain way. What we like to do is we like to just remain in a state of ignorance by justifying it through feeling. So, all right, what you believe determines how you will behave. That's really important in context of your relationship with the Lord. Now, let me go to the next word there. He says, therefore, I urge you, uh, therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner Worthy of the calling you have received. So, kind of that word worthy right there is really important for us. Just without breaking it down too much, let me just post it this way. Imagine if I just like rewrote this a little bit. Implore you to be worthy of the gift. It says of the calling you have received. Now, when Paul says calling there, when we talk about calling within a Christian context, there are a few different meanings based on Ephesians chapter one. If we go all the way back to the very first sermon, we see the word calling there and it's inextricably, uncompromisingly, unbreakably linked to the idea of salvation. So the idea of God calling you out of your deadened lifestyle of your deadened spiritual state because of sin, you have been brought out of that. You've been called out of that by the Lord. So he's saying, based on that call, based on your salvation here, I want you to understand, be worthy of it. So here's what's important. Let me make this point. The biblical command to obey is not the means to grace, but a thankful response. So let me just break that down for you. When the Bible gives us imperatives like it does here, and we're about to unpack it, like, all right, here's the action that you need to take. It is not, nor should it ever be thought of as the answer, the means, the doorway, the provincial ability to receive salvation. Paul says, because of the salvation that you have been called to, now walk in a manner that is worthy of it. In other words, be thankful through your lifestyle. Because Jesus gave you something that nobody deserved. No matter how good you could try to be, and no matter how bad you were, Jesus nonetheless loved you unconditionally. And he says, you are my son. You are my daughter. You are my inheritance, and I have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And there is power that is made available to you to live the life that I'm calling you to. Remember, I've said it last week and over the weeks. God doesn't, oh, how did I say it? It's a point I'm trying to go back, but uh, God doesn't call us to accomplish tasks that he doesn't equip us for. He's never going to call you to things that you can't accomplish, that he's not already going to provide the means for you to accomplish it. And that's done through the power of the spirit. That's another reality of this calling, this life that we have been given anew in Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying here, remember, in light of that, I'm not telling you that you need to walk and to follow these commands because it earns you anything. It's been given to you freely. You can't earn it. And all the more reason why you need to understand how vitally important it is for you not to squander it, not to belittle it, not to take it for granted. Because I think when we can really approach being obedient to the Lord from that perspective of like. God, you deserve a thank you. And I wouldn't be where I am if it wasn't for you. So, Lord, thank you deserves that otherwise when we choose not to be obedient to his word i'm talking about willful i'm not talking about we all make mistakes right we're not all this isn't ever supposed to be uh, a declaration of perfection it's not but it's a declaration of willfulness of action of active living for the lord and right here we see just paul make it really clear understand that this walk that I'm about to break down, that we as Christians all ought to live, is done so out of thankfulness because of the grace of Jesus Christ. It's not a means to salvation. All right. Now let's get down to the how of this whole situation. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 2 now, he goes on and he says this. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So there's a lot of words right there. What what we really need to see is this is the how. Paul said in verse 1 to walk in a manner worthy of a calling, to live, to adopt an entire lifestyle. The context of this right here is once again unity amongst extreme diversity and amongst different racial classes that are in extreme differences from each other. That all of chapters one through three, we talked about a week after week, Jews and Gentiles. Hey, recognize Jesus Christ set the standard for us to recognize that we can't judge one another in an illegitimate manner. We can't try to force each other to conform to worldly patterns or cultural patterns or ethnic patterns. It's all we all conform to the cornerstone that is Christ, which means everything else comes second to his standards that are set for us. So in light of that, Paul is saying, therefore, I urge you to walk, walk this lifestyle of unity in love so that you can really achieve racial reconciliation through humility, through gentleness, through patience, showing tolerance for one another. Once again, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit. So let me just quickly break down those words, humility kind of literally in the original language means lowliness of mind. And that's not to say that you ought to think lesser of yourselves. Like, oh, I'm good for nothing. I'm worthless. I don't deserve anything. It's, it's not that. He's saying, really, the death of pride. It's, it's allowing yourself to be knocked off of the pedestal that you think you're on, where I'm always right. I know this is the way. Nobody can tell me otherwise. You're, you're not going to be able to achieve unity in Christ with that. You need to be humble. Second one is gentleness. This quite literally means controlled anger. Gentleness here doesn't mean weakness. In in, in fact, it's it's really saying your emotions aren't in control over your every action. So recognize if it is, you are not walking by the spirit of God. The conscious exercise of self-control. That's really hard for us as a society as a society to do to exhibit and exercise self-control. Can I get an amen? Amen Amen to me, too, (laughs) because I'm right there with you. But again, don't don't think, oh, oh, in order for me to achieve unity, I I just need to be weak and a pushover. No, it's saying right here, recognize that there are going to be injustices and things that are just flat out wrong. But control your response. Don't not act, act through the power of the spirit, through the lens of love. Understand that God is going to show you and give you the wisdom and the means and the ability to respond the way that you ought to. Okay. Patience. Patience literally gives us this this imagery through the word, the the etymology of the word, the, uh, the origin of the word gives us this picture let me give you this picture for patience. Patience, this patience is of the inhabitants, the people of a city that's under attack, under siege by a warring by a warring opponent. And in this attack under the siege, when they're locked in and they can't get out of their city, they plant crops, crops that they are desperately hoping and eagerly anticipating will grow so that they can harvest them. While they're stuck in captivity. So the context of this word is in light of persecution. Is in light of pain. Is in light of hardship where I can't go anywhere else. I'm stuck right where I'm at. And excuse me, but this sucks. I, I, I don't have any answers right now. But right here Paul is saying. You need to walk. Exactly in that way. And exhibiting patience. Waiting for the harvest that is inevitably going to take place because God's going to cause the growth. Which is really important when it comes again to understanding God's relationship towards us. When we contend with the idea of wrath. Romans talks about the fact that we all are sinners and that we all therefore deserve the wrath of God because of that sin. But the first 11 chapters in expounding upon that reality culminate in the fact that the Lord loves us and his forbearance is great. In other words, his what we're about to get into into the next point right here. But the idea of tolerance. Let me not jump to tolerance because I need to get into that. But God's wrath ultimately is being withheld. This is interesting. This is really interesting because God isn't attacking us. God isn't supposed to be the opponent here in this idea of, oh, we're in a city and we're stuck together. It's just saying, understand, it's the same for God when it comes to his wrath. He is patiently waiting. Sin tries to attack him. It's got no power over him. But sin is the antagonist of God. It's the antithesis to his nature, who he is, exact opposite. But he's patient because the harvest is plentiful. 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 Just like him, we are called to show patience to our brothers and sisters in Christ so that the world can see, hold on. They're not taking each other to court right now, which Jesus talks about. Why why do you drag each other off to court for the world to see? You ought to settle these matters amongst yourself. That's the word tolerance quite literally means to sustain or to stand strong at your post as attacks are coming. This is hard. This is difficult. But I can't sit. I can't bow. I can't roll over. I can't play dead. I can't hide. I need to stand here, which is interesting, as we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 6, why Paul instructs us. To put on the full armor of God. You don't need to move to win the battle. The battle is won. But the enemy is still going to hurl rocks at you. As it's kicking and screaming. Because they're angry that they lost. And so we're called to stand. But if we stand of our own strength. We will fall inevitably into their ranks. And become an enemy of the Lord. God says you need to clothe yourselves. With the full armor of God. But that's jumping ahead to chapter 6. And we're not there yet. So ultimately, what we see based on just these characteristics of humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance is ultimately this. Unity doesn't happen overnight, but is a constant, conscious effort. If you think that. A new relationship is going to give you that sense of love and community that you're so desperately striving for, just like that. I just need to have a passionate moment with somebody. It's not the answer. I mean, you might start a relationship, but it's not going to carry it through and cause it to be healthy and viable and strong. Again, let's be real about the context, racial reconciliation within the world. The answer isn't a quick fix that Congress is going to give us. And listen, I I love the idea and and we're going to always seek opportunity to do it. But let's even talk about like being in the community and doing community outreach like those actions are good. But if they are devoid or there is a complete absence of these qualities of when we go out and people come up against us in anger. Are we being tolerant? Are we being patient? Are we being gentle? If those aren't there, then what are we doing? It's just it's empty deeds. That are not showing the world the true character of God through us. So again, it, it's, it's this complete holistic lifestyle that we need to adopt as men and women of God. If you want to be a part of a true community where you feel like there's something different in this place that I just I crave to be a part of it. That only comes when we adopt these characteristics that are only made available because of the work of Christ. Remember, the walk that we're called to live is to be done so in a worthy manner because the freedom to walk it has already been given us. All right. Now, in verse 3, the main thing that I want to point out here is the phrase to preserve the unity. This is an indication of something that already is. This is interesting because we, we know that the salvation that we have already is. But also Paul is taking it further here and he's saying the unity that we have as a body of Christ already is. So I'm going to make a point and it's going to be a big point. But I'm telling you, if you just give me a moment to really explain it, it's, it's, it's going to rock you. Here it is. If you Unity, if, listen to me, if unity is contingent upon the absence of offense, we've occupied a seat we have no business sitting in. So let me translate that for you. The only way that we can be a healthy community is so long as nobody ever offends me. speaks wrong against me people always treat me the way that I want to be treated people always speak to me the way that I want to be spoken to the minute they cross that line and listen to me that's a line of subjectivity that you've set because we all have a different threshold and we all have different standards the minute we make it contingent upon an absence of offense community can only happen if I'm never offended Then we've occupied a seat that is reserved for the Lord, who he himself doesn't even exercise fully. Because, listen, we offend God every day. The existence of sin-stained individuals is offensive to God. So it doesn't mean he hates us. He doesn't. On the contrary, he loves us so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have everlasting life. But the reality of sin itself, not the person, the sin is so offensive to God, but he exercises forbearance towards us. The Lord's wrath is being withheld until the final culmination of sin where God says, OK, now it's time. But I have waited. I have been patient. I have stood firm. I have shown humility. I have shown gentleness. Therefore, recognize That the minute we try to make a standard of I am only going to achieve true community or be a part of that community so long as I am never offended, it's not going to happen. And that's not a license for you to be walked all over. That's not a license for you to be offended, especially racially. Don't don't think that that's not what's being said here, but it's being said. That if we only allow God to work in our lives, so long as we set particular standards, like I better never be offended, it's not going to happen. We live in a fallen, broken world. I'm an imperfect being. Take a look in the mirror. You're an imperfect being. Because if you measure others, you better measure yourself to the same standard that you measure others. It's the beauty of the gospel. It just really puts us down on the same playing field. Because the way that the enemy works is he loves to try and get us to think through pride, yeah. to operate through pride rather than humility. It's the first step. The minute we've adopted pride is the minute that we think that we are above or beyond any need to receive correction, to receive the word, to hear the truth, and to walk in accordance with it. Yeah. So if unity is contingent upon the absence of offense, we've occupied a seat we have no business sitting interesting is first john 1 8 says that if we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us god makes it very clear there that be careful if you think you're standing lest you fall because we are so inclined to be led astray by the enemy to buy the lie that i'm good i don't need help i'm good Like, don't worry about me. And that translates inevitably to your relationship with the Lord. Because I'm telling you, if you're not being honest with others, you're not going to be honest with God. You think it's easier to be honest with God. It's not. It's really not. Because when you take the steps to be accountable to others, then you just, you really realize how important it is to be accountable with the Lord. Because then when I know I've done something that offends my wife and I have to confess it to her, there's a remorse. There's a pain that I hurt her. Yeah. I've offended her. Yeah. And when I'm willing to exercise that process of vulnerability and repentance and honesty with my wife, it's going it to inevitably translate and teach me about the truth of my relationship with the Lord. He's not just this right. dude that I can scream out to and ah, I feel all better. I, I got that off my chest. It's like, it's not what it's about. It's about proving The integrity of the relationship with the Lord by showing it and proving it through our relationship with each other. By this, the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So if we go around saying, oh, I love the Lord. I live for him. And we know our theology and we explain everything so thoroughly and carefully. Great. But ultimately, it means nothing if your actions aren't consistent with your words. And how are your actions consistent with your words? By the way that they are exercised within community, otherwise, hmm, let's finish. About to say my last point, verses four through six. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What's the key word here? One. That's right. There's a lot of key words here, but I'm just going to, I want to focus on one right here. These verses here are now an illustration. Paul, see, he's being a good teacher, a good pastor. Just like at the beginning of the sermon, I gave us that that introduction illustration of that series of alone. Paul's kind of doing the same thing right here. And he's going to use the greatest illustration to prove the importance of community. And that illustration is shown us through the Trinity, through the triune Godhead. So. First person of, well, categorically, we would say father, son, Holy Spirit, first person of the Trinity, father, son, Holy Spirit. It's not a level of authority. It's just the way that we normally see it in Scripture. But right here, Paul reverses the order. And he goes with Spirit Lord, or Lord is always referred to in in uh, association with Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and then finally God the Father. Not really important. I'm just pointing it out that the roles are reversed, or the order is reversed here. Now we believe within our faith that we serve one God. We don't serve three gods, but we serve one God with three distinct made made of three distinct persons. And this isn't a split personality. This isn't the idea that one is more important than the other. It's truly, we see within the Trinity, the complete, perfect unification of three completely necessary, inseparable realities of the Godhead. When we see God the Father, we do see a God who is a God of complete justice and a God of complete, deserving wrath. Not that he's deserving, but he has every right to show wrath because of the sin of the world. We see a creator. We see someone who shows himself in divine, miraculous ways in the Old Testament, but we also see a loving God. And I'm not going to get to Jesus yet. We see a loving God within the Old Testament. We see God who within that reality of withholding his wrath is doing so because of love. We also see a God who appears and manifests himself time and time again to his people. We see a God who allows the spirit of God to fall upon great individuals in times of distress or in times of need where he wants to reveal himself to the world. Through his spirit. Then you jump to the New Testament and you see it really plainly represented in Jesus Christ. And then finally fulfilled through the Holy Spirit who reveals further plans of God as our deposit, as our seal, as our indwelling power, as our advocate, as the spirit of truth that will lead and guide us into all understanding to know the will of God. So we, we see these three Persons of the one being of God working in complete unity to fulfill every aspect of his plan and to fulfill every need that we could have as a dependent creation. Now, Paul now here uses it as an illustration to show us the necessity of community. So he says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. And without breaking everything down, it's everything that we just saw. If you go back and reread the first three chapters the seal, the deposit, the one who affirms or proves the calling, the salvation, the work of Christ in our hearts. It's proven. Jesus is that seal that says, I'm stamped. I am marked. The spirit is the seal, the stamp that marks us so that when we stand before the father, he goes, you're my child. You're my son because of the spirit of God that dwells within you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul talks about this in Corinthians. He talks about the necessity of the fact that, listen, it's in Jesus Christ and in his name that we have been baptized. It's in him that we place our faith. So, again, here it's just a point. See, Jesus is another integral, completely inseparable part of the Godhead. And then finally, the God and Father of all who is over on throne in all. This is talking about the sovereignty of God, his complete power that we see very readily manifest in the Old Testament when God says, I'm doing this and it's going to happen. So here, again, the illustration of the Trinity represents the perfect unity of three distinct persons comprised of one being. So before I get into how exactly this applies to us as the church, which I'm sure some of you are already piecing together, let me just talk about the fact that we're created in the image of God. This isn't something that Paul talks about in Ephesians, but I think it really helps set up the final point of what we're going to get at here in Ephesians. It says in Genesis... That the Lord within the context of plurality, where in other words, it's saying, how shall we make man in our image? It's like God He's talking to multiple individuals here. There's a lot of theology and interpretation that can be put there. But the bottom line is the Trinity is present there. And God is saying in our creation, let us make man and woman in our image. Now, there's been a lot of debate as to what exactly does it mean to be created in the image of God. The fact that we are, you you know, that God has this, I know it's a a big word, anthropomorphic uh, idea. In other words, God looks like us. Or the fact that we're created in the image of God is literally that he has at least the same shape as us. You know, I don't know. Uh, Maybe it's the fact that God is a God of love. Yeah. Oh, no, but maybe it's the fact that God is a God of truth. Yeah, maybe it's the fact that God is a God of community. Yes. Bottom line is when it comes to these characteristics, it's all of the above. Because being created in the image of God is quite literally the reality that we are called to be the living representations of God to the world in his entirety. We don't embody the truth of love the way God does, but we carry his essence. It's God living in us as we allow him to indwell us that the world is able to see it's kind of like we're a walking mirror for the people to see a contrast especially whether we're living for the Lord or not even amongst believers when we look at each other and we're convicted that's the Lord shining through the individual that convicts you and it's not something to run away from or to be scared of unless of course they do so in a in a way of condemnation which is not right But if you're just uncomfortable because of the way that somebody's living their life or because of the word that you hear, that's a reflection of God being shown you through that individual in that moment because you are an image bearer and we all are image bearers and we are called as image bearers to be a proper representation of who God is. Okay, so now let me, that's like an, an individual purpose that we all have, but it's very individual. Now, let me talk about the church of God. The, the the place, the gathering of individuals who come together that represent the body of Christ, with Christ as its head. The church. I'll, I'll just give you kind of this rough working definition of what the church of God is. It's this, the unification of individuals with God as its source. It's not on the screen, I'll say it again. The unification of individuals with God as its source. So. Being created in the image of God, I need to recognize that I walk around as a representation of who he is. But I don't just have an individual responsibility. I have a corporate responsibility as a part of the body of Christ. Therefore, within this this community of unification, we ought all now to recognize the divine imperative that has been placed upon us To walk around keeping each other in step through ironing, sharpening iron, because here's ultimately what we need to understand that I'm going to conclude with my purpose. So this is in an answer to the question, um, how important is community? Here it is. My purpose, my individual purpose as an image bearer of God can only be accomplished within the confines of community, because it's what I started talking about earlier. In order for me to be able to prove that I love God by being worthy of the calling to which he has called me, I can only do so through my interaction with the people of God, done so in love. So is community important? If you're the introvert here and think I'm good being by myself, I don't ever need to be with anybody. That is a lie from the enemy. Another lie from the enemy on Valentine's Day is the fact that you need to be married in order to be in true community. Another is the idea that you have to be in a significant relationship with somebody else. You need to be in love. Let me say that's a lie from the enemy that's trying to steer you away from the truth of what it means to really be in love with the one true God. Proven through your willing readiness to be a part of a community where you exercise humility. Where you exercise humility gentleness where you exercise patience where you exercise tolerance so that the true unity of the body of Christ is achieved but this reality of me being able to truly truly in its entirety in its in its complete entirety be able to say I'm an image bearer of God and I walk around representing him in a way that that affirms loving, that he is kind, that he is gracious, that he's merciful. You can't really do that unless you're in a community. You can't. And the devil's going to try to convince you all the reasons why you can't. So ultimately, um, I I just want you to recognize the beauty of what we have here. We at Glad Tidings Church, man, we are blessed to be a part of this community. We are a community. And we're always going to strive to maintain the Biblical imperatives for a community that are just abundantly made clear in his word. So I want you to stand with me this morning. And again, as I close in prayer, I just. I want to ask you to do this with me. Uh, I want you to repeat after me just these characteristics of what a true unified community of Christ ought to exhibit to the world. So I'm going to say it, and if you're willing to just repeat it, repeat it and believe in faith that God is going to equip you with the power to exhibit it even when you don't feel like it. All right? Here it is. Humility. Humility. Gentleness. Gentleness. Patience. Patience. Tolerance. Tolerance. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the power. That I'm able to see from it and and receive from it. I'm thankful for the power of God that is made clear through your word that is living in me. I'm thankful that I am able to recognize the characteristics of that power of God that lives in me. And Lord, now I pray that we all together would now allow that power to work through us within the confines of community so that we are a community that exhibits humility. Jesus, when we are just so caught up in living through an arrogant lifestyle, of I know better, I have the answers, everybody ought to conform to my patterns. Lord, I pray that you would humble us in Jesus' name and I pray that you would drive out pride in Jesus' mighty name. Lord, I pray that we would start exhibiting gentleness. Lord, not not weakness, not being pushovers, but Lord, gentleness, controlling our anger, exercising self-control when it's the last thing we wanna do, when the world and even when people in our own community aren't responding the way that they ought to, aren't showing love, and they are causing offense towards us. Lord, I pray that we would control that anger. And I pray that we would allow righteous retribution to take place. I pray that we would speak the truth in love and not sin in our anger. Lord, I pray for that patience, God. I pray that we would eagerly await the harvest that is inevitably coming. In spite of the fact that we are attacked and the enemy seems to be closing in on us. Lord, I am perplexed, but not in despair. I am persecuted, but not abandoned. I am struck down, but I am not destroyed. The enemy's trying to get me to believe lies. I am attacked, but my victory is in Jesus' name. And Lord, just finally for tolerance, I pray that we would be ready to To exhibit tolerance to stand firm when those offenses inevitably come because they're going to be just some offenses that that individuals aren't going to repent of that individuals aren't going to confess Lord, that individuals aren't going to stop hurling at us, especially outside of the world. Lord, I pray that we would stand firm in the power of God in the love of God so that we will not fall so that we will not falter but know the fact that we stand in the power of God, in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we, as we exhibit these characteristics, would unity be preserved? The unity that you have established. We didn't create it. We did not manifest it. We did not come up with a good idea to establish community. But Lord, you established it, and now it's our job to preserve it, Lord, So I pray that you would give us wisdom, Lord. You would give us all all of these characteristics that were just mentioned in order to preserve the unity that you have given us and that is only found in Christ so that ultimately the world will be drawn to you through this community. Now, Lord, I thank you for these that are here and for those that are watching. Lord, safe traveling mercies to those that are leaving this place. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we would continue to grow into the fullness that is Jesus Christ. Now, I thank you and I praise the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Come on, give God praise this morning. Thank you, Jesus.